Double Look Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Hey, hey Glenn, so, you know, I just found out that uh, I've got this disease, right? It's this disease where I can't stop making puns about airports. Doctor says it's terminal. <laughs> Very good. Okay. What, what, you got one for me too, don't you? I do. Uh, yeah, along the same line, just kind of a cute little one-liner. I once tried to market a new sandal made for people with one foot. It was a flop. <laughs> uh, I like that one. <laughs> uh, it made uh, I really chuckle. like that one. Yep, I, <laughs> I really do. Uh, okay, so real quick, uh, uh, big thanks out to a, kind of a, b- a big crew that just joined us here uh, this week on Patreon. Uh, so thanks to our new patrons, Jeffrey, Jeremy, AJ, and Sandy. Uh, really appreciate you guys uh, you know, shooting a couple bucks our way. Yeah, we'll definitely put it to good use. Yeah, thanks, guys. We appreciate it. And we are looking at some creative ways to use uh, that, that money, besides paying the bills and the server, the hosting, the SoundCloud hosting, the, the website, and all the other stuff. It re- I mean... It's not insignificant. It it, it does add up. So we do appreciate it. Uh, So, yeah, no, I'm excited about uh, some of these new ideas for 2022. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, We have some some things to discuss this this week uh, regarding some uh, listener emails and some conversations we've been having and even a little bit of follow-up from last week, right? Yeah, why don't we start there, Glenn? Yeah. So last episode, we had Hillary on. And Hillary was talking about you know, many things in her life, but at some point, uh, you know, she mentioned that her dad was Ken Moses, or is Ken Moses, he still is Ken Moses. And the fact that, you know, I had asked her, well, you know, if you don't mind me asking, you know, he was obviously involved in the Mayfield error. And I was wondering, you know, when we were talking about error, uh, what she thought about that and what, you know, how that had any impact. And from her perspective, did that impact her father at all? And she was very clear. No, no, he had a very long career afterwards and continued to do work for 18 years afterwards and had many cases and was still very passionate and involved in the field. I mean, you know, it was a a tough blow, you know, at first, uh, but his passion for the field and his contributions to the field continued to override that. And, you know, he had a long career even afterwards. And one of the things that uh, we're going to talk about today are errors, and it's, it's the topic of conversation. And... I just thought it was interesting, and because it's gonna, this is going to dovetail into some of our topics today, I mean, I have been involved in some cases, I don't think Ken knows this, but where Ken had been involved or been asked to look at something, I've been asked to look at something for the, either the other side or also look at the case from a different perspective. So I've actually seen Ken's uh, CV, his resume, and on the resume, I was surprised to see that he lists the Mayfield error. He's actually sort of listed it toward the top and effectively says, yeah, I'm one of the guys involved in the Mayfield error. And he sort of fronts the issue, kind of gets it right out there that, yeah, I was involved in this. I, I mean, at least the resume I saw, it was there. I don't know if he's still doing it at this exact moment, but it was there at the, in the one that I saw. And I thought, oh, that's, that's smart. You're fronting the issue. Yeah, so there's no gotcha moment. It basically, I'm disclosing the fact that, yeah, I was involved in an error. 
but that doesn't define me. And I've had many cases before that and many cases after, and I'm still very competent at what I do. I made a mistake, and I've learned from that mistake, and I've shared that mistake with other people. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, definitely not the norm, um, but in a circumstance like that, I could kind of see the logic behind that. Uh, yeah, like you said, kind of getting it out there, I think anyone that was involved in that case and made that error or, well, geez, I can't really think of a more high-profile error, but I, I think that would almost be a requirement going forward after that for, for really any examiner involved at that level of that you know type of error. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are four examiners involved in that that error. Two of them don't do work anymore, um, and Ken Moses being one of them, it did. And then another individual from the FBI who was doing consulting work uh, found it difficult to talk about in, until he had retired from the FBI. I'm not exactly sure where he is today on the, on this. I know it, it was an uncomfortable topic. Um, but I, I, I don't know that he has it in his CV or he is as vocal about it. It was, again, an uncomfortable topic for a while. Sure. So, well, I think that actually just kind of coincidentally uh, really aligns with an email we got here recently. Yeah. So uh, let me uh, kind of read out here. Uh, this is from a, a listener of the podcast. And, you know, the examiner says that says that there's been discussion in their group of whether or not a fingerprint error should be mentioned in a resume or in a CV, you know, if you've made an error in the past. They were just asking what we thought about not this specific case of the most famous fingerprint error of all time, uh, but just in general, if an error should appear in an examiner's CV. Right. Yeah, I I know that I had some thoughts on this, and I was... I, I thought, just like you, this could make an interesting topic uh, because I've seen different ways that this is handled and in different countries as well. And, and in this particular instance, the, the, the person who emailed us is actually from Canada, although we're going to address it from basically a North American perspective you know, with United States and Canada. But again, I've seen different versions of this uh, in other countries and you know how Europeans, including you know the English and Australians and others, may sort of handle this. So sort of English-speaking countries, um, how how this is handled. But my experience is that the Canadians and the U.S. are going to handle it this somewhat similarly. So based on your reading of her question, Eric, what was your reaction? I mean, before we even get into what requirements sure. or what this group says or that group says, what was your reaction? So, I mean, my, my initial reaction is, is actually it's pretty much the same reaction I have anytime anyone mentions the word errors uh, is, uh, you know, can you please be more specific? Uh, you know, what type of error are we talking about? So um, let's, let's say it's an erroneous ID. So erroneous ID, exactly, and that's—I mean—I think that's clearly where we're heading here. But just I was, you know, wanted to say that that is, I think is a good question to start with: is should erroneous IDs be handled differently than erroneous exclusions in regards to this question of putting something into your CV? Uh, and I, I think that's, you know, initially that's that's fair to consider erroneous IDs, you know, uh, separately from erroneous exclusions or erroneous inconclusives, erroneous value statements, any of the other kinds of errors that could happen. Because we, I mean, we do treat those differently. That's a, it's a different reaction from the quality assurance department 
it's viewed very differently within the field. So I, I think that it, it's still, it is at least initially, we can kind of make sure that we're all moving forward with erroneous identifications is what we're talking about here. And the other uh, misses or errors that might occur, I think are more obvious, not something that needs to be put into uh, to a CV. So then the next thing I went to was, I was really kind of getting to the the phrasing in the SWIGFAST uh, conclusions document and also from the DOJ, the, the, the uniform testimony uh, guidelines, I, I'm forgetting the acronym completely, but anyway, it starts with uniform. <laughs> um, but you know, even in both those places, it says that it's important not to testify in a way that makes it, you know, that implies that because you've completed a certain number of comparisons, that it implies some sort of level of accuracy for your work. And I, I think the reversal also kind of applies, right? The number of I mean, to some extent, it's not a, maybe a perfect analogy, but the number of errors that you made in a certain case or an error in a certain case doesn't necessarily imply your performance on this case at hand. So anyway, that those are kind of the initial things that popped into my mind when I when I read that email. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, I have some I have some thoughts as well, and my first reaction is no, it should not be in a CV. It's just that's not an appropriate place to put it in a CV. Um, we'll circle back around to that. Uh, one of the things you said was, you know, quality assurance. You know, how, how does quality assurance handle it? And quality assurance, you know, treats, as you said, an erroneous ID differently than an erroneous exclusion. And on, on the surface, uh, I would say I agree with that. Our profession treats it culturally quite differently. Oh, very and, much. And I find that some quality assurance units treat them differently. I have also experienced That's quality true. assurance units that treat them equally. And it's it's weird because they're treating erroneous exclusions at the same level of an erroneous ID, but similarly, they're treating an erroneous ID as a not as serious because it's at the level of an erroneous exclusion. I mean, however you want to look at it, glass half full, glass half empty. And my quality manager was one of those. He came from DNA. He's like, it doesn't matter. This is a technical error. You sent out a technical error in this report, whether it's an erroneous ID or an erroneous exclusion, they're treated the same from a quality assurance process, right? It's the same things that get triggered. It's a remove the person from casework for a period of time, re, uh, examine past cases, uh, do a root cause analysis and recommend a fix to prevent or limit or reduce the chance of it happening again. Whether it's an erroneous ID and erroneous exclusion, I kind of agree with that approach that quality manager should treat them the same, which, again, is surprising for maybe some traditionally trained examiners who think of one erroneous identification as a career killer, that your career is over, you're tainted, you'll never be able to walk into a courtroom again. I don't know, a modern quality approach to that really should be treating those, I, I think, somewhat uniformly as there's a standard way to handle errors, and here's how that is. Um, I mean, okay, I would agree up to a point, right? So a standard way to handle errors, yes. Where quality assurance gets involved in both circumstances, absolutely. They're documented and tracked uh, with with a root cause uh, analysis or at least documented to understand yeah, the root causes that led to this error occurring. Pulling off a casework, mm, 
I think it depends on uh, on a few things. If it's uh, for a bad ID, yes, I think that's appropriate for a bad exclusion. I mean, I don't know if it's a it's if it's a you know one of those Helen Keller's people talk about. It's a full on temperant temperant that you missed. Okay, maybe, but if it's I just found a, a another real nasty one that's going into my you know my new classes. I'm really excited to to get it out there to people. I don't know if someone misses it. Yeah, I mean, that's just what happens with erroneous exclusions. And at a certain level, you, you can't be doing this every day uh, or every month even. But I, I think that that a lot of agencies have policies in place as to, okay, we recognize this as a pattern of problems at this level. And then this is when we take that extra action of pulling off casework, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I get the idea of pulling them off. It, it really, it's so agency dependent. If you if you pull the person off for a period of time, that allows you to investigate their cases while they're not outputting. Because if it's a, if it's if you made the error, let's say because you're on a certain medication, I mean, or whatever the reason might be, I mean, I, I can I can see the logic, and I, and I kind of agree with you. It's going to be very agency dependent, and how risk averse these agencies are at the end of the day i i think stop pulling them off of a certain duty just to start checking cases if you don't see anything pretty quickly you know that this isn't an occurring trend right now i'm kind of with you there's no reason you couldn't get them back on or at least under some sort of restrictive conditions until the review is done i don't know i think just even looking at the sample under question for an erroneous Mm -hmm. exclusion you look at it and you go oh boy Glad I didn't have that one. Document it all. Understand what happened. Use it as a training opportunity. Include it in training material going forward, and then get back to work. Hmm. Especially if this has been—it's been—it's been been two, three years since the last time they had an erroneous exclusion. Good job. Well, I I, I hear you. I, my my personal experience is QA is not that nuanced. Uh, agency dependent. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Okay, so it sounds like you're in agreement. doesn't need to be in the resume. What about the disclosure? So when, for example, it's stated that this analyst is involved in the case, again, this is really agency-specific, and I'm thinking of particularly the Army Crime Lab, that when they disclose their analysts, they actually also disclose other history of the analysts. So they'll disclose things like corrective actions and a number of other things. And I've always found that to be really surprising, right? Basically, any time that that analyst is involved, there's this sort of packet that goes to the defense attorney. And it's not only the case stuff, but the history of the examiner. And I found that to be rather, well, pretty bold move, especially if defense isn't asking for it Specifically in the case, that seems almost unnecessary. Now, if defense is asking and they specifically want to see the employee's uh, performance records or they want to see their proficiency testing history or they want to know if there have been any administrative corrective actions, um, disciplinary actions or those kinds of things, I mean, they have a right to ask for those as well, but sort of upfront disclosing it, I had always found surprising. And I, I think there's only a handful of laboratories that really do that. So that, that's that's interesting because I guess it's kind of how you look at all of that information. You know, right away, it's, it's so you're saying if they ask for it, right? And so if they ask for this information, included in there would be the the history of, of like I said, corrective actions, probably resulting from erroneous conclusions. 
And I think, I mean, the, the logic behind, you know, handing that over when they ask for it would be because it's potentially exculpatory information, right? Well, I mean, I think it depends. I mean, if you're looking at all corrective actions and it turned out that the analyst wasn't, you know, filling out the reagent log correctly, so there's a corrective action or, you know, did some other kind of documentation thing differently in an SOP, you know, I would not consider that in in any way really exculpatory. Well, I mean, depending on the the details of the case, though, right? I mean, if the details of the case involved using that reagent, then what's it called? But the bar isn't actually exculpatory. It's just potentially, right? Um, Okay. So then I guess kind of following that thread, if it's potentially exculpatory, then defense doesn't isn't required to ask for it. They just get it by default, or they should just receive it without even having to ask for it. Well, I mean, it's true. I mean, there are disclosure responsibilities, and, and I guess that's what I'm, I'm sort of bringing up. One laboratory takes those responsibilities to the extreme of saying, you know what, we're just going to disclose all past, if you will, quality errors – uh, that you know, this employee has made. We're just in, in each case, we'll just give that packet. Whereas other agencies are like, well, you got to ask me for it, and then you got to be real specific about what you want. I mean, do you want erroneous exclusions, erroneous IDs, or do you want administrative documentation errors, or all examples of the employee not following an SOP or doing something? I mean, you know, you said it. Is that something potentially useful to show that a particular employee has a history of not following SOPs when they have all the evidence that they followed in this case? I mean, it's it. That's why we're talking about it. I mean, I I find it interesting, and I think there are different interpretations to this, but it does seem to be that um, the employee, unless involved in a specific case, unless there was something that the employee did in this case, doesn't necessarily have the obligation to disclose it up front for other past cases. Hmm. That's one of the things that, that was kind of mulling around in my mind, you know, after receiving this email and, you know, kind of preparing to talk about it in this episode is in my mind, it, it seems like there's, I have this distinction between what's in a CV versus what is part of disclosure. Keep oh, and, let, and let's, let's actually quickly define that too, based on my, Teachings with uh, Brendan Max, he's been very clear. Disclosure is something that you need to provide. Like, defense doesn't have to ask for it. You should be providing it. This is something that you forthright provide to the other side in a case. Whereas discovery is we're requesting these additional things. We're asking the defense is basically asking for these specific things. So disclosure is um, you taking your own onus to offer it up. And and when you say you know, you, you're referring to you being the prosecutor in the case, who's who's ultimately responsible for true for that, for that uh, disclosure. That, that is true. No, that that is true. It's the prosecutor's responsibility for the disclosure. But again, they will usually pass that blame on to you if you didn't disclose to them <laughs> that it existed. Right, right. Which which is always why you know <laughs> when I was doing casework and got. Got a uh, subpoena. Uh, it was, you know, first step. All right, send everything to the prosecutor. <laughs> and then right. You figure out what to do with it from here. Yeah, right, right, right. So I don't know. Is that is that a fair distinction to make uh, as this difference between what's in your CV versus what is disclosed to defense? I don't know that the history of an examiner is something that 
there is a legal decision on that the, that must be disclosed. It can certainly be discovered, but I don't know that that is something that's mm. disclosable. And maybe again in the Army Crime Lab and the court martial system, maybe there is some law, and that's why they do that differently. But I, at least historically in the U.S. and in Canada, I've not necessarily seen that disclosure rule. Well, I mean, you've you've been working. I mean, you work a fair amount of defense cases, reviewing uh, casework from you know examiners in government-run crime labs. When you come across an issue in a case, is that something then that you would then recommend that the defense ask for a discovery then of of any additional? Uh, material similar to this issue you've discovered uh, or discovery of just any issues for them to examine or like what would you recommend for the defense side kind of putting on the uh, mm-hmm. the other hat here looking at it from that perspective yeah uh, great question and the answer is yes and uh, yes if i see a problem in a particular case that i have a sense of well, how is this person just not following their rules, their own SOPs. We might want to look at some other things here. So yes, I might recommend it specifically for discovery in that. And they'll have, they will. It will become discovery. They go to the court and get a court order. And <laughs> to be honest, in cases where I find nothing at all, like zero, the case is impeccable, and the attorneys are like, hey, look, I need something. Like, well, it doesn't hurt to ask for this dig and see you know make sure that the employee is on the up and up um because i mean sometimes a case can look impeccable but it's because you know they're dry labbing you know or whatever i'm not saying that i've seen that but we've talked about other things where the employee's casework looks it looked impeccable but you know um the employee was in fact not they had either falsified their cv or other issues so that's always kind of one of those little low-hanging fruits i can throw to an attorney go well did you consider asking for that and they usually are surprised that there may be those corrective actions that exist but then that's when i get into the conversation with them about disclosure and discovery like look if it's in this case they should have disclosed it but if it's in other cases you can certainly ask for it, and I have seen instances where uh, agencies have said, no, it's not relevant, we're going to fight this, and we're not going to provide it in other cases. If it's related to this case, we will provide it. This is, again, where that jurisdictional, and sometimes you have to get the judge involved who's going to decide, and I, I think it really will vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So it's funny because when we when we first started, you know, just kind of talking about this over email, it seemed like we were both on kind of the same side of – but we kind of only referred to really the CV, CV side of right. things, yes. right? Of of is this something to put into your CV? And I, and again, that's also kind of what linked up from the last episode. Why why right. we kind of saw this this uh, this thread is uh, you know, what Ken Moses had in his CV for actual like a a, a disclosure that seems relevant to me. You know, the problems have been detected by the Quality Assurance Department. Now, I go, kind of going along with that is the assumption that. An agency upfront enough to provide all of this information in disclosure is also paying attention enough to document all of it because I, I think there's there's definitely agencies out there that maybe aren't accredited uh, or just aren't don't have any process to have any kind of record of what's going on. Agreed. Yes, but it, it does put a lot onto. Uh, the defense to make sure they ask these questions and in, in on the stand or in a pretrial interview, you know, asking the questions about 
uh, about other other errors. But then I guess it, man, man I'm, I am back and forth uh, <laughs> yes, on, you on are. both sides of this issue. <laughs> it comes back to the, the other side of things is how does past performance speak to the level of accuracy in this specific case? So that, dude, that is exactly what I just wrote down because I was getting the sense you're making the argument that – well, it should be. It should be disclosed because past performance matters. But I know you've also taken the position that, well, past <laughs> performance doesn't matter. So uh, uh, argue that, and then I have a, I have a comment. Um, you need to argue with myself on this one. I seem to be doing a pretty good job of that. Of taking. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Well, how, let me let me jump in with the comment, and and maybe sure. this will this will help the tension. I felt this way very much so. Oh, 10, 15 years ago, I, I had um, I was actually in an argument with a couple of law professors, including Michael Sachs, and I had made an argument along the lines of, well, look, just because you made an erroneous ID, you know, five years ago, that doesn't mean that there's going to be a, a different chance in this case, or there, you know, there's more of a chance, or it doesn't really tell you anything about the chance of an error in this specific case. That's kind of the argument is. Well, how does the past actually tell us anything about the current? And then he came back in, in a letter to me, like it was a like an actual like letter letter to me. I was like, Glenn, you're you're wrong. You know what the hell you're talking about. And uh, this is Michael Sachs, uh, Arizona State uh, University professor. It was a he criticized a lot of forensic science 10, 15 years ago. But his argument, and he used a baseball analogy. I'm going to use a football analogy here, and. <laughs> You know, it's Super Bowl the, coming up here soon, right? Well, right. We've got the Super Bowl the, this weekend. So there's a reason at the beginning of the season that it's not a 1 in 32 chance that every team is going to the Super Bowl. The odds aren't 31 to 1 for every single team. So the team with Tom Brady is not 31 to 1, and that's the same odds that they're giving the Lions. So past performance does actually have some indicator in certain arenas. We know that certain things in the past are going to have some influence. Now, it's not a lock that whatever team Brady's on is going and the Lions are going to get shut out of any playoffs, although it's pretty well, darn close. The Lions are going to get shut out of any playoffs, <laughs> right. so we, we just know that. Yeah. It's pretty darn close. But but his point was, so the past does matter. And, and then after... Christoph has schooled me on this, and, and I've talked to uh, Cedric and Christoph over the years, and it's a very Bayesian, and this wonderfully elegant phrase that yesterday's probability is tomorrow's prior probability. So this idea that, yeah, the past data tell us something about the future. It's a good, in a Bayesian setting, it's a good prior probability. It's a good starting point, Right. But then you take in new information and make adjustments. So if, you, if you're prone to making errors, like let's say you're prone to making erroneous exclusions, uh, and between me and you, I'm more prone to making erroneous exclusions than you are. And my, my basis for this is you and I have different views on erroneous exclusions and the policies required and when to use that and whether or not a focal point or, you know, are necessary and so on. So I'm more likely – to give exclusion decisions, and I'm more likely to make exclusion errors. And I think my past, I probably have more than you do. And so historically speaking, going forward, as a prior probability before we even start a case, 
I don't know, I'm, I'm 10 times more likely than you to make one. Now, if it's a relatively, once we start taking in the case data, the likelihood ratio in the case, and it's clear and obvious, and it's got this, and it's got that, and it's got that, then that might normalize things out. But in a more marginal case or a more difficult case or a trickier case, that's where I think that prior is going to have more influence. I'm going to be more likely to make one than you based on not only past history, but that past is informing my present. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, no, actually, I was going to go in that direction next myself. So I'm glad we're we're kind of here on the same page in that. Okay, so let's talk about Ronin's exclusions. I think that's a lot more relatable for yeah, for a lot of examiners listening, uh, because if you're out there listening, you've either made a Ronin's exclusion, uh, or you will soon, or you don't report exclusions. Those are kind of the three categories that <laughs> you're going to fall into. But kind of to, kind of building on what you're saying there, it it kind of comes down to how does that apply to this case, right? That's that's really what it gets down to from a legal perspective is, is applying it to this case. So an examiner should be able to describe how this case is very different than the case that led to the error. Mm-hmm. Um, or if it isn't different, if it is actually very similar circumstances, then that becomes a very relevant conversation to have you know, with the defense. If you don't make erroneous exclusions on basically fully rolled, you got two cores and two deltas in the latent kind of thing. And because that's none of your errors are on that kind of print, but that's the one, that's the exclusion you have here in front of you in this case. Well, then it becomes easy to distinguish this one from those. But if your past performance has been half or two thirds of my erroneous exclusions have been on tips, and this is a tip that I excluded. Well, I think that's, that's pretty relevant information uh, to, to ensure that the defense has access to. Yeah, that's the past informing the, the present, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. Uh, but, I mean, I, I've come to see Sat- Michael Sachs's point that he's not, he's not off base on that. And I, I thought he was kind of quackish in the beginning, but I've come to, I've, I've come to see that point and how it can be relevant. So, I mean, to your earlier point, does defense you know, have a right to have those just disclosed to them errors. Because, I mean, well, I mean, I can see the the argument, well, it might tell us something about this case. On the other hand, um, it may not. It, it, it's, I know we're both being a little, we're both being wishy-washy <laughs> on this. So let me help with, let me try to, to kind of solidify us here a little bit more. If defense is entitled to it by requesting discovery of that information, and understanding the resources that the defense typically has available to them, should it just be uh, disclosed automatically then? Well, that's that's the question. And uh, my, my first takeaway is I don't know that that falls under disclosure. I, 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 I mentioned to you off the air, I've reached out to a couple of friends who are attorneys and wanted to kind of get their, their hot take on that that we didn't hear back in time. But maybe in next next episode, if we hear back, I'd like to share their view. But my 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 quick take is not in disclosure, but in discovery. I think it's fair game. Well, what I'm hearing you say is you you hear the value in it, but if there isn't necessarily a legal obligation, like there's no, like clear case law, like oh no, you must disclose this up front, then it kind of falls under the. Well, gee whiz, it'd be nice too, but I recognize it won't always happen. 
and uh, you can go either way on it. I, I feel like you're kind of soul searching for a, it'd be nice if there was a clear legal decision on this. Yeah, I, I guess. Um, but I'm also kind of thinking through, I can imagine the case where it's super clear, right? Where, where the past error is very similar circumstances to this current case. And then that makes it, I think, very relevant to this case. Hmm. Who, who know, like who, who out there can determine how relevant the past information is to this current case? I mean, who's going to do that? Is that going to be the, the QA department at a, at a lab? Is the examiner? The, the prosecutor has got no, it's going to have no idea. I guess barring QA department looking into the details of each case that's coming up to trial and finding the information from past errors that might be relevant, that doesn't seem workable, right? So then the best solution may be just to hand over everything and and that being the solution to 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 ensuring that when it is relevant, it's provided. So that's interesting. I, I'll just give it a quick DNA um, from what I remember from DNA labs. You know, they will keep a, a log of um, unexpected results. That was the phrase I would hear, unexpected results. But they didn't like, disclose it in every case. If there was discovery and the attorney knew to ask for a discovery, they would, of course, provide it. But they maintained it, they tracked it, but didn't necessarily disclose it. I feel very much that this falls under those kind of circumstances. Hmm. Is it like um, contamination kind of issues? or? Yeah, contaminations. Yeah, but it also involved, you know, different interpretations or uh, like an interpretation to the wrong individual, you know, like uh, swapping administrative errors, kind of like a like their version of a clerical error. You know, they have the right statistic, but the wrong person. Yeah, I I mean, I've seen those things. They're all they're all in their unexpected results log. Anyway, uh, let me let me take a a slightly different tack uh, here. One of the things I've seen on some CVs when I've reviewed CVs from examiners in the United States is some will put their proficiency test results on their CVs. They'll even list, you know, the proficiency test and the particular test number. And then because those results are online, the attorney can actually look them up online and see what, uh, for that code, what the examiner or the lab's results were. Thoughts about that? Have you seen that before or have any thoughts about that? I, I don't recall. I don't think I've seen the specific number. Yeah, I've had the request come in uh, as part of, you know, can you provide your CV and proficiency test history or something like that. Right. Um, but I don't think I've seen, you know, the uh, an actual CV that lists out the actual specific codes where you can look that up. But that's that's an interesting concept. It was that common up in Minnesota? No, 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 no. I I saw it. Um... In two different jurisdictions in the U.S., and neither of them are are in Minnesota. Okay, I'm trying to remember if I even even put that on my CV in the past. Right, I think it, it always just would come up during voir dire or just in those intro questions. You yes. know, what do you? Who are you? And what do you do? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes up either in discovery; they'll ask for it, like as both happened to you and I, or it's kind of part of a voir dire right? A person's qualifications. I mean, seeing those, when you first saw those, did they come across as, oh, this is helpful to, you know, establish someone's 
credibility or did that I, seem I, extraneous in a CV? I don't, I don't know. One lab was not accredited. I believe the other was, or they're just about to seek accreditation or they're going through it. I, I don't remember. I, I uh, frankly don't know their thought process on why to put that on a CV. I mean, it may, if the lab wasn't accredited, it may have been that particular examiner's kind of attempt to, to say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I can to no, no that was not the case i oh. no, you're, no, that was most definitely not <laughs> okay never mind and that, i I, pre- I appreciate the attempt so glenn as a as a part of that question like you said that came from a canadian examiner you know, they provided this uh this document from ken frig the the canadian friction ridge working group Yes, that uh, that is their sort of uh, anal- uh, an- analogous swig fast, but yes, it's a Canadian working group. <laughs> it, it's I'm not sure which is better the the difficult to pronounce acronym or you know Ken Fruig or the uh, swig fast, which was much more of a backronym, just kind of pick some words and make it fit. <laughs> right, <laughs> but in any case, uh, so this was a kind of a position paper on where they stand for releasing documents or information upon discovery or disclosure. Well, uh, right. so, again, disclosures. That's that's the important thing, disclosures as opposed to discovery. So one of the possible things that was requested is documentation of corrective actions for discrepancies and errors. Specifically, provide uh, any and all laboratory records of erroneous individualizations, erroneous verifications, clerical admin errors, missed individualizations committed by the laboratory, and the name, case, uh, etc., resolution, uh, uh, corrective action taken, uh, etc. For so this is this is even broader. This is not just this individual, but the entire laboratory. Right. Yes. There's a request for that information, and the response being, you know, these are third-party records and should not be produced. They're not relevant. Uh, first, they're not legally relevant. It is not permissible to examine a witness on prior accuracy or proficiency as a means of challenging current reliability. Yeah, that's a really interesting phrase there. Yeah. That kind of goes back to the, I mean, that sounds like the argument you would have made to to Michael Sachs. Right. Yes. Which I I don't stand by necessarily anymore. Right. Uh, This type of examination would require a consideration of collateral matters and would inevitably violate the collateral evidence rule. Uh, It is impermissible. And then it lists some some case references. Yeah, and I think that is generally the case here in the U.S. as well, except again under voir dire. If you are doing a voir dire, then it is permissible to ask about those things. And then second, they're not logically relevant. Historical proficiency is not a relevant measure of current reliability of an expert's opinion. Uh, and then it goes on to talk about about discipline error rates uh, not being relevant to the case at hand uh, because of the vari- variability in quality, quantity, uh, etc. Yeah, and I, from what we said earlier, I don't know that I agree with that either. I mean, again, if we just look at the error rate, let's say, in bite marks versus in fingerprints, if you... Just take those two things separately and then show me any randomly selected fingerprint case versus any randomly selected bite mark case. Which one do I think is more likely to be inaccurate? Well, based on historical proficiency and historical testing, 
I'd say the bite mark case, but then we go to your point, you need to dig in, are these bite marks on skin? Are they in cheese? Uh, is there something specific about the person's dentition that uh, makes it a rather, you know, a distinctive bite uh, mark and, and teeth? And so then you could sort of see if you can separate the elements of the case and, and make an argument that, well, the past doesn't apply here because this is a very different scenario. But again, generally speaking, I think it's, I think there's relevance. It's it's a complicated topic that clearly very smart people have different views on. Even different views within the same person, right? Um, <laughs> right. <okay. laughs> yeah, you know, I think any kind of time that you you reference uh, an accuracy study like this, I mean, it's it's kind of tangentially related here based on past performance just of the discipline or this group of examiners versus you know this examiner for this case in order to really you know have some sort of relevance or to kind of translate that relevance it's important to understand the details of this case here at hand how does this comparison relate to say the average comparison from uh, from the study or the average comparison in the field in general decision is are we talking about an id or an exclusion uh, that's obviously very different circumstances and Agreed. and error rates right which just i mean if it's not obvious i mean it's different than gambling per se where each round of the or spin of the roulette wheel or each you know roll of the dice these are independent events and don't have any influence on the next event I don't know that that's necessarily the case here. I don't the if a, if a person or an agency or a discipline is more prone to error because of their methodology limitations, then that will produce in the future higher error rates than than the other ones. Yeah, well, I mean, like if you just look, you know, has someone made an error, and how does? Looking at it in that way, one or more errors relate to now. I think that's, that's, that can get really kind of wiggly. But if you can look at, okay, this person has been discovered to have made this type of error once, I think that that becomes a little difficult to distinguish between that person and someone with zero. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, again, I, I, I take your point. But someone with 10, Okay, we're starting to get to the point of you know what's what's going on here is is this a pattern and ten in a year? Okay, then then yeah, okay, let's let's that becomes something that might be you know, really important uh, to disclose. Yeah, um, uh, Tom Brady's seven Super Bowl rings uh, speak to that. I, I think all of this this whole conversation a piece of subtext is this kind of uh, assumption. That if someone makes, say, 10 bad IDs in a year, they're fired, right? They're just not doing this work anymore. That when we talk about a bad ID, we're talking about typically a once-in-a-career kind of thing. And then what happens after that? Yeah, my, my own experience of seeing when examiners have made multiple erroneous IDs, they're all in a short time frame because of something that happened, a stress or a change in medication, a health issue, a number of things. They were all sort of clustered because of it, it was another event triggering this. Right, right. So then, then that becomes you know very, a very clear distinction where where the explanation is pretty clear as to why this wasn't the case for this case at hand. It affected these cases, you know, in this time frame. Yeah. 
well, Glenn, I, I, I'm not sure we have really helped the field here tonight, <laughs> but <laughs> it, when it comes down to it, for the specific question that was ans- asked uh, over the email in the CV, I'm going to say no. I say no, too. I'm leaning towards this should be something that is commonly disclosed to to defense and I'm a little on the fence as to whether that should be automatic or not, but at least for tonight, I'm leaning towards yes, partially because defense doesn't know better to ask for it. Mm. Uh, I will say, uh, even though I have great sympathy for defense, uh, they should know to ask for it, but you're right. They may not, but that's on them. Uh, do your job better. Sorry. <laughs> I love defense, but that's my feeling. It should be discoverable and Agencies should be tracking it, and then they should not balk at it when asked for it. They should provide it gladly and go, here you go, and have the package ready to go when asked for it, but not disclosed up front as a matter of course, in my opinion. And either way, that isn't really a decision for the latent print examiners to make. That's that's a decision that's going to be made by the lab and by the prosecutor's office and the latent yep. print examiner is probably not going to have a whole lot of say either way. However, either way, the, process, the latent print examiner is going to have to be ready to talk about it, kind of either scenario that we both proposed. So I think that's then the takeaway is, is being ready. Okay, how do I discuss this uh, in court? All right. Now, there is one thing that I, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention here is there's a separate issue on the Giglio decision in the United States. So Giglio is kind of like a Brady thing. This usually applies to police officers. So Giglio is similar to Brady, and it is information that needs to be provided in a case. And because I don't have a, a legal background, um, I'm, I'm going to give a little bit of, you know, I, I don't know this as well as I should, but whenever I hear about Giglio, this is usually involved with police officers who have a history or have some event in their past of not being truthful, lying, coercion. Basically, it's like a blacklist. I always think of Giglio as you've been blacklisted. You've been Well, it's, it's the, called a Brady list, isn't it? it a Giglio. Uh, I've heard giglio or a Giglio list. But some jurisdictions might think of that as, as, as a Brady issue because they're both related. But I always think We're of right, Giglio as, as the black, blacklist. Yeah, so I, I guess I've heard being on the Brady list, right? It's, it's, and that's kind of what I assumed that, that that was referring to. Yeah, now, and I know some agencies, uh, Eric, you may even know some of these agencies. Some agencies, if an examiner does make an erroneous ID or had some sort of disciplinary action within their agency, that will be giglioed within that agency, and that will be disclosed because then it falls under Giglio. So there's a little bit of if you have what the agency deems as, well, we need to make the other side aware that you have a history or some issues. And again, usually there's a difference between an error versus, oh, no, they falsified some records or they, right. you know, they, they've done something bad versus you've made an error. We're making the distinction that bad is a conscious ethical choice where you, you did something, you know, unethical effectively. Is that, then that, does that become like agency specific as to which agencies track and release this data automatically? 
Yeah, I, again, I, I suspect that it has a strong influence from the prosecutor's office in that jurisdiction and what they that jurisdiction, deem yeah. to be Giglioed. And there are going to be certain, again, I know certain jurisdictions have have told me, yeah, yeah, if you make an erroneous ID here, that's going to be a Giglio issue. I've never heard someone say the word Giglio that many times in a row. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it, so, it sounds like... Um, it's 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 uh it's Family Guy. It's Giglio Giglio. That, that's the guy I'm thinking of. Yeah. Everyone's everyone's thinking it. Everyone listening is thinking Giglio Giglio Giglio. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's just get it out there. But we can save that for another episode if we want to <laughs> try to talk to some legal people who maybe know this better and can make that distinction. Sure. Yeah, that, that's that sounds like a, <laughs> sounds like a good plan. Okay. All right, so uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't get a chance to talk about it in this episode, even though we're going a little long. It, it's worth bringing this up. You and I got an email uh, last year, months ago. Months um, ago, yeah. From an examiner who wanted to share a story because he had listened to us talking about uh, our, one of our previous podcasts about errors. And he wanted to share an experience that he had a couple of years ago when he had made an error in the case. And, I, and it, he gives him permission to share this story. So I'll I'll read excerpts from it. So the error that he made was an error of confirmation bias. I had two latent prints side by side, both right loops, and in their positions, they looked like a right index and a right middle finger. I searched them both in APHIS, and the one in the right index finger position did hit an individual's right index finger. The other one did not hit. I compared the right index finger of the record prints to the latent that I hit, and I determined it was an ID. I compared the right middle finger to the other latent and decided that was an ID. I sent it to my verifier, and they agreed with the ID to the right index finger, but asked me to take another look at the ID to the right middle. Yeah, it's simultaneous, man. That, 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 that shit's dangerous. Mm. That's, an, that, that's another episode. That, that really, <laughs> we, sh- we need to get into simultaneity in another episode. We have different views on this, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we do. Uh, although I'm sort of on the fence about something. Uh, it doesn't matter. Another episode. All right. So basically, it's a mistaken case of simultaneity. Right. They assumed it was simultaneous. It looked that way, but it wasn't. Right. They thought that the latent was made by the same right index finger. So it was basically the, the right index finger touched twice, mm-hmm. side by side. I compared it again and agreed with my verifier that both latents were made by the same right index finger. My error was IDing the wrong finger, but to the correct individual. It was clearly an error caused by confirmation bias. I'm adding this. Confirmation bias stemming from the perceived simultaneity. Right. I reported the error to my tech lead, who passed it up to the quality manager. I was immediately suspended from casework. An audit of my previous cases involving possible simultaneous impressions was initiated. I was directed to research and write an essay on confirmation bias. I'm going to stop for a second because first, I did laugh when I when I read that. I was like, write an essay? Is this like Bart Simpson? Like at the chalkboard? I I will not make er- erroneous assumptions about simultaneous impressions. I mean, that, that seemed a little like, all right. Is, is that really what we want to do here? Is that... <laughs> No, that, I, I mean, I, I agree. I, I can understand the other parts, yes. you know, saying, all right, let's take a pause from casework. Let's look at other cases involving simultaneous impressions. That all feels like, you know, pretty standard. The, 
I would even say training on simultaneous impressions would then be a next step. The essay seems a little odd, but maybe, maybe there, there was no simultaneous impression training available and that was kind of the best they could do. I, I, Oh no, there definitely was. This was just a couple of years ago. So there was. Oh, this least... is okay. Never mind. I wasn't sure how long ago this was. No, he said it happened a couple of years ago. So yeah, there definitely was. And and side note, whenever in our agency there was that kind of error, we had at least one erroneous ID and lots of erroneous exclusions. We always made a case in our root cause analysis and the corrective actions to always ask for additional training. I mean, what better opportunity to ask for training <laughs> than when you have errors? I mean, it's it's the, if you're ever going to get training, that's when that's going to happen. So I, I would sure. say jump all in with your errors and take advantage of that and get additional training. There you go. And if it's the course is held in warm Florida in the winter or Hawaii <laughs> or SoCal, even better. You know what? I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that there are not enough uh, training classes hosted by, by Hawaii. You know, I, agreed. Hawaii, get on this. Come on. All right. So continuing on. In a meeting with the tech lead, my manager and the quality manager insisted that the error could have led to an erroneous apprehension. I said, you have to explain to me how. Their reply was, well, I just think it could have. Neither the technical lead or the manager said anything about that in the meeting. In phone conversations I had with the, the technical lead and the manager later on, I told them both that they knew the quality assurance manager was wrong, that the error could not have led to an erroneous apprehension. In other words, no one else spoke up to kind of come to his defense. And the quality manager sort of went off on this, well, th this could have led to this. And I, I again, I when I read that, I went, oh, okay, that's this is a bad quality manager. They, they're, they are they're inflating the problem here by going, well, worst case scenario, this could have led to the conviction of someone and, well, it could have been a death penalty and this person could be dead right now because of your, your that's not what, that's not a quality manager's duty. A root cause analysis, come up with a conflict uh, resolution plan, come up with a, uh, a a plan for the future, corrective, corrective action. action plan. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, this, not all people in the quality manager position are great quality managers. Not all people in manager positions are great managers. So my suspension, and he uses the word suspension. Again, I, I, he probably meant it as a suspension, but again, I take a distinction between um, being removed from casework production during a review of cases in a root, root cause analysis, but this was a suspension, and I can see where he's going with this. My suspension lasted for three months, and I had to take a competency test before I was allowed to go back to casework. Again, that seems silly to me. Uh, even though it was a one-off type of error, the way management handled it made it embarrassing and humiliating for me. And that's a great point. It, it is exactly how his management handled it that I could see this to be embarrassing and humiliating. Yeah. I felt I was being punished and mistreated. It shattered my confidence. I spoke to associates in other ANAB accredited labs who assured me an error like that in their lab would not be treated the same way the error was in mine. And I, I tend to agree. This sounds like a quality manager who, frankly, maybe need to reel in a bit. 
there would have been some corrective action if a pattern of non-conformities was developed, but that wasn't the case here. Out of anger, frustration, and embarrassment, I nearly walked out on the job during that time. But I held on, and in just a matter of months, I had a new job at another lab. Uh, the culture here is very different. In my previous lab, there was a culture of fear. Scientists were afraid of mm. making errors for fear of how management would handle them, and understandably so, considering my situation. I fear the result is analysts are afraid to make decisions or may sweep nonconformities under the rug when they do yep. so occur out of fear. Uh, there's no fear where I work now, and my new boss assured me that such an error like that, if occurred here, would be treated very differently. Man, I, I, I can really, I can just feel, right? I can just feel his frustration at the situation, yeah. especially at the beginning, right? His his kind of trust in I'm going to go and have have this discussion with my tech lead. And then we're going to talk with the quality assurance department. And he fully understood the severity of the issue mm -hmm. and, and, and expected uh, some actions that would address the issue that happened. Right. And the disconnect being that it sounds like that some of the actions were extraneous or didn't really address the issue at hand and were more just, well, anytime there's an error, we've got to, to do, you know, X, Y, and Z to stop it from happening again. And it's the corrective action, the, the, the plan forward has to be really relevant to this error, or you're going to, like, like you said here, generate this culture of fear. Yeah, and I, I've seen quality managers, without a doubt, who some were just on a power trip. I mean, how they treated error was not very insightful. They had low emotional intelligence. You know, they, they didn't have the best personalities. And the way that they managed the human aspect of it was really poorly handled, which sounds kind of like what he's referring to here. Whereas I've seen other quality managers recognize exactly as he's saying, I wish it could have been handled this way, or there would have been this uh, understanding of the seriousness of the error and let's do what we're supposed to do through root cause analysis and corrective actions, but let's make it also, you know, make sense, not feel punitive, not feel humiliating and a number of other things. Yeah. It's, right. um, it's, it's unfortunate because it, it will, it will leave a, a really bad taste in your mouth for the next time that you have to deal with quality assurance. And like you said, there, now you get motivation that, well, where, where is the, Where's the impetus to come forward with um, self-reporting errors? I wouldn't want to go through that again. So next time there's a temptation to not um, necessarily report those kinds of things. I think one of the most absolutely important things that a quality insurance uh, department must do at a laboratory is be very clear from the very beginning if and when an error happens, and it could be, you know, different you know different responses for different errors but if this error happens this is uh this is what happens next so that everybody knows what to expect and what should be happening next there's the, there's no worry about favoritism or different reactions for different people if it's okay if it's erroneous id then this then we do this if it's erroneous exclusion then we do this if it's a if it's a latent that got just didn't get compared got overlooked never got claimed to be a value or a, a, a missed a suitability decision then this is what happens and for the other units too like what happens if there's contamination in dna or if there's a uh, some uh, problem with the columns 
or the blanks or whatever happens. If very clear, okay, this is the problem. This is what we're going to do about it. And even if different labs might have different kind of levels of reaction and may treat some errors a little more harshly than others, you know, say erroneous exclusion, one lab treats this almost nothing. Another one kind of bumps it up a little bit. As long as everyone knows what to expect going in, I think it makes the process a whole lot smoother and leads to a better ending than the story described here. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, I can't think of any instance where I just I can't think of one where an agency during training taught a, a quality assurance module of let's go through a couple of examples of what would happen if you make these sorts of errors. Let's let's exp- like you get that kind of training if you're going to become an assessor or you know if you've got some you know uh, connection to the quality assurance unit. But usually you don't find that stuff out until of course it's happening and you're in the middle of it. It's a kind of an interesting point for training purposes that there maybe should be a, a, a quality assurance module that even mimics or at least uh, synthesizes what might occur if these things happen. The, the other thing that, that comes to mind is it's a very clear memory I have back in, oh geez, when was the conference in Phoenix? Was that 2013, I want to say? Yep. That's a little, man. Or, 20, or 2012, it was 2012. Was it 2012? Oh man, we're, we're just getting old, Glenn. That, that's full on 10 years ago. So that was the, the first kind of big conference where I, I did a talk, uh, you know, co-presented on the exclusion topic, right? It was the, it was the big room, uh, packed room with with everyone there to, to to listen to me talk about exclusions back before anyone knew who the hell Eric Ray was. After that, was, the presentation was over, kind of getting pulled aside by someone saying, "Hey, you have a few minutes to talk," and then suddenly being kind of surrounded by a whole crew of Army Crime Lab examiners, hearing them talk about the quality assurance steps that were in place at the time to deal with erroneous exclusions, yep. which was take you off a of casework, review all of your cases going, you know, backwards in time, X amount of months. And if there's more, then continue reviewing from there and just looking for more and more and more and more errors. And then you're basically offline for three to six months, depending on kind of what they find. But also that the way they operated was that every uh, every latent that wasn't identified was also sent to an APHIS unit to get searched through APHIS. And then if they found the ID that you had missed, then you and your verifier get pulled off of casework. Same thing happens going back and looking for more and more and more and more and more. And they were getting to the point where there was just no one left to do casework. The whole process of looking for the errors had kind of lost sight of okay, what's really important here. The, the important thing is reducing the risk of them happening in the future. And this whole just take off casework and look for stuff wasn't doing that, right? There there, need, there needed to be some sort of training or some different policy or practice or way of doing the examination standard for exclusion that would actually address the problem instead of just looking for more uh, problems or writing an essay. Uh, and I think that's got to be the focus there of Okay, we're, we're trying to reduce the risk of error, so what action can we take to actually do that? Right. Well, I just want to really thank this examiner for writing in. Um, like Glenn said, we've been waiting for months to find kind of the right episode to to tell this story. And, and I'm sure there's other examiners out there with a similar story where 
they knew there was a problem. They wanted to take these steps to address it, and quality assurance kind of took it in a different direction. Even still, just telling the story about an error, especially an erroneous ID, is is not something that's very common or hasn't been in the past. And, I, you know, Glenn, over the past year, between this story and especially the, the, the presentation that we've talked about previously from Texas DPS, it seems like there's slow movement in changing this mindset of what an error means and how we address it uh, in our field. Uh, and I think this this kind of more open approach to having these discussions is so important in helping our field move forward, move past this kind of the, this older mindset of it's a career killer and towards an improvement of the field overall, where we actually reduce the risk of error because we're more open in talking about it. It may look like there's more errors because in the past maybe we just didn't talk about them at all. But I think people learning from other people's mistakes is going to have a a hugely beneficial result uh, overall. Yeah, I, I I would tend to agree with that. What I have noticed is, oh, the first 15 years of my career, people would kind of pull me aside or we'd be at the bar and we'd have a couple of drinks. And at some point they would confess Look, I got to tell you something. I made an erroneous ID, and they're very ashamed about it. They're very embarrassed about it. I'm like, you know, I should I should let you know. I've heard this story fifty times in the last couple of years from other examiners. You'd be surprised that they're a lot more common because they do what you're doing. They only say it kind of behind closed doors, sort of whisper it to one person, and no one else really knows about it. Yeah, they really do happen a lot more than examiners recognize, but because few examiners want to talk about them or come forward and sort of proclaim it from the mountaintop, the uh, the rest of the examiners don't benefit from from that. And uh, that's where you know, we can bring a, a voice to some of that, but it really does need to be like we've seen in other industries like the medical fields or the airline industry where there's a place to go to share those stories anonymously so that other examiners can you know, learn from it and share and recognize also a little more common than I think the average examiner thinks. And, and probably a little biasing because, well, if I don't have one and you don't have one, well, you know, <laughs> there must not, must not be that many. But just about every unit I know and... I know a lot of examiners that have had one at some point in their career. And and, and continued on yes. you know, from that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think and I learned said, from it. Yeah, I, I think I said this in a past episode. I kinda wish I did someone I wish someone would bring one to me and go, Glenn, look, here's an erroneous ID that you made. So that at least I could sort of join that club and, and then proclaim it from the mountaintop and share that. I, I mean, I feel a little weird. I don't want any listeners to think that, you know, in any way I think of myself differently because I often think, oh, I easily could have, especially in my early days. The, the, when, I, when I was pulling the trigger on seven and eight point IDs because that's what my trainer taught me was completely acceptable, it was very risky. I was very risk prone in my early career. And I, I, I wish I, I could join that, you know, badge of honor club and, and share my own experience through that. Uh, so again, I try to live vicariously through colleagues that share their <laughs> stories. So, yeah, it's very appreciative for the email. And, and I hope that other examiners kind of hear this and that it, 
it encourages people and quality assurance departments, but you know, just overall in the forensic field to be more open about this so that we can, we can learn, right. We can learn and reduce the risk of this happening to the next examiner, uh, because we're all improved by going through, uh, and learning from, uh, from others mistakes. I mean, can you imagine how amazing that class would be the class of here is just five days of reviewing other people's bad IDs. I don't know that, that that's, that would, there's just so, I think there's just so much you could learn and and yeah. pull out from this sample and this sample and this sample. Just going through example after example, image after image, to seeing what there is to learn. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, take your point. But as of right now, where where are those, all those images? Where you know that where is that class? What if you wanted to build that class? Where would you even pull all these images from? Uh, that's the problem. The images are the property, if you will, of the agency, and the agencies don't want to release those. Uh, examiners, you know, have a, can't get them to us. There's no repository to send these case examples, which it's unfortunate. All right, Glenn. Well, good discussion overall, and I'm really glad that we finally got to uh, to tell this story. Uh, any classes you want to mention here coming up soon? Yeah, real quick, uh, by the time this gets out, it'll probably be too late, but I'm actually going to Florida at the end of the month to teach a an advanced Ace V course that's in the Orlando area, and then I will likely be back there again at the end of April, April 25th uh, through the 29th, uh, to teach an exclusion sufficiency class with John Black, and then the following week, I'll be in Idaho, uh, that is May 2nd through the 4th, teaching with Carrie Hall and Brendan Max, defense attorney, teaching practical answers to challenging questions in the courtroom. And then there's another ACEV course in the middle of May. That's May 16th through the 20th on the East Coast. Uh, that's going to be in the Massachusetts Martha's Vineyard area. Oh, okay. Uh, if you're interested in the new uh, exclusion class that I'm teaching, uh, I'll be doing a virtual class in late spring, early summer. Still need to set the exact date, but uh, I've got a list of of interested examiners that I'll be reaching out to soon. So if you want to get added to that list, uh, please send me an email. And you can reach us, Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com. Yeah. Hey, Eric, if you don't mind me jumping in, I guess one other thing I should mention. I still am doing online webinars, oh, too. okay. With Alice White, uh, she recently just moved from Las Vegas. She moved out to Virginia, so I know she had a oh, little wow. bit of downtime. Yeah, yeah, that's we got to get her on and kind of talk her up a little bit. But uh, anyway, I'm still doing webinars through her uh, EvolveForensics.com site, and so if you're interested, I think I have some March dates if you're looking for webinars. I'll probably put some on for the summer as well. So go to EvolveForensics.com. All right, great. No, that's that's great. And yeah, getting Alice back on would be fantastic. It, still one of my favorite interviews we've ever done was way, way, way back in I think our first year uh, in talking to Alice. So yes. uh, it would be great to get her back on uh, to to talk more and, and hope she's enjoying a little bit more green than she's used to <laughs> in, in the Las Vegas area. Uh, all right, so uh, check out our uh, our website, doubleitpodcast.com. Uh, for episodes or merchandise you can also listen to us soundcloud stitcher uh you know wherever you would get your um, get your podcasts 
And with that, uh, anyway, anything we say is the opinion of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that we work for. Uh, so with that, talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.